0: This morning, surprise, we actually are going to continue on in Galatians. Uh, I wasn't too sure. Uh, like a few weeks ago, we had done chapter one in Nahum, and I was trying to figure out if I, that's where we were going. And I really enjoyed learning more about Nahum, and we might revisit that in the future. But I feel, I feel really connected to this material right now. The teens on our district and actually across the Church of the Nazarene are studying the book of Galatians and then on down the line of multiple Pauline letters, but they start, they're starting with the book of Galatians and, uh, and studying it every week. And so I thought, oh, you know what? I could dive into this. This is really neat. Um, and I don't know how you study the Bible. I've gotten into this new habit. It's kind of an old habit that I started doing where I just I read the scripture and then I look back over it with an actual pen and notebook, and I just put the number of the verse, and then just my thoughts, my questions, my concerns, what, whatever it is, and then I like look at those and just try to understand what God's trying to say to me, what I'm thinking about, so that I know how to search out more information, so that I know how to make some more conclusions as I read the chapter. That's how I Bible study. Maybe you have a different sense of what works for you. Um, but before getting into a, a Bible study kind of situation, we'll get into chapter two of Galatians. But I want to I ask you to use something right now. Everybody ought to have one of these with them today. Yes, you should have your Bible, perhaps, and you can open up to Galatians chapter two. But there's something else. It's, a, it's, it's invisible. You can't see it. You can't hold it in your hands. But I hope everybody brought it today. That is your imagination. I need you to use your imagination for just a moment here in my introduction to this message today. I need you to go with me back into a time of your life when you were in maybe grade school or high school. Okay, I'm going to give you a second to go there. Maybe you're not there yet. (laughs) Maybe it's church camp for you, okay, in this context. But now I want you to remember where you ate lunch at. Maybe it was cafeteria, maybe you were able to eat outside in a courtyard or under a tree or something like that. But I want you to put, put yourself in that setting for just a minute or two, okay? So you're there? Maybe? Okay. So uh, we're, we're in cafeteria. I'm just going to say cafeteria. You put your brain where it's, wherever it is in your brain. But you're, you're at lunch and you're having lunch with this nice new cool kid and he comes down and he sits and has lunch with you. And you say, oh, that's pretty nice. That's pretty cool. And and perhaps you, just so you wouldn't just be eating alone, this person sits with you and you get to know them. And over the next few weeks, you grow a little bit of a friendship going on here, right? You chat, you get to know each other over lunchtime. However, all of a sudden, it takes a turn. You see... This new friend sees you sitting all by yourself and doesn't even look at you really and make eye contact. Walks on by because he's found himself a new group of friends. He's gone off to eat with someone else. And he doesn't even invite you over to eat with his new friends. And, and you hear them chuckling and can maybe pointing over in your direction and you're pretty sure that they're making jokes at your expense. I want you right now to just think about what would actually be applying. You would think in your mind, oh man, they're they're making the joke about the, this thing about me. Yeah, so that's what it is. Whatever it is, you're pretty sure that they're joking about that thing. And otherwise, when you see them in the halls of school, uh, they don't talk to you, they ignore you. Perhaps this connects, maybe it doesn't. I hope you can at least imagine what I was showing you right there with these words. But if you still got that mental picture in your head today, I want to ask you a few questions. What did you think about what happened there? How did you think about that friend who went off to eat with somebody else instead of you? This could be all internal. (laughs) What if if somebody else, however, saw that happening, said, that's that's not right what you're doing to them, and stood up for you, stood up to this so-called friend and told them that they were wrong? How would you think and feel about that person? Well, this scenario is how I picture the last half of Galatians chapter 2. We will get there in a little bit, um, but I want to dive deeper into this entire chapter, and it, we've got to start with the beginning first 10 verses, but we'll get to that New Testament cafeteria in, an, in just a moment. But let's go ahead and, and open our Bibles, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as I read this. It says this, fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem.' This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. For as for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me God does not judge by external appearance those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, again, just for the sake of the fact that this is the beginning of the chapter I really want to talk about today, I w- I think that this first section is very important and I'm starting to understand more and more of the importance of some of these bits and pieces because of our Bible study, we're talking about timelines in the Old Testament and how they present themselves in scripture, telling how long things have happened and then work backwards. Um, Because what do we have at the beginning of this chapter might sound similar to this. Dear journal, 14 years ago, I went and did a thing. It might sound a little bit boring to hear that level of detail, but those specific details are actually important and exciting. They are details of Paul's history. He himself is recalling for this particular audience. That's pretty powerful. It's not just somebody else saying something else happened to someone else at such and such a time. Hey, at such and such a time, I did this and here's what happened. It's a a closer level of information. What these details do add is more authenticity to the writings of Paul and about Paul. Even back before the internet, these letters were being read and passed around. I know my child can't imagine their internet didn't exist at one point. If things such as inaccuracies were in them, the others noted, named here Peter and James and John, could have called Paul out on it. Hey, you dropped our name, but you made this and this inaccuracy. We need to correct that. Yeah, no, that's not what happened here. Also, when we're given the time frame in Scripture, it's a helpful tool to get a sense of when things happened in relation to other events. Let me give you an example from Luke's account of Jesus' pre-ascension timeline. Just a very short snippet from the book of Acts, verse Chapter 1, verse 3 says, After his, Jesus, suffering, he presented himself to them, the followers, the disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. That little note is right before he ascended into heaven. So even though scripture doesn't plainly tell us when Christ ascended, We have a timeline showing that he was seen by people for over 40 days after his resurrection. Then after that, he ascended into heaven. So we get a little bit of timeline. And then also, because of the name dropping, we have a little bit of accountability here. Uh, that's not actually how it went down, you know. Yeah, you, you'd have to, you'd have to cover it up, or not co- you, there'd have to be some sort of weird conspiracy. No, there's not. There's accountability here through the scripture, and it, it lends itself to authenticity. Now, what we have here in this first section, Paul talks about this private meeting. Right? Here's what we ought to focus in on on this section. Paul went to the apostles. He himself went to the apostles to make sure his race was not being run in vain. He never states what his revelation was specifically that motivated him to meet privately with the apostles, with those who, who were leaders. But the context makes me wonder if it had anything to do with whether the gospel he preached was being received correctly, so heard, interpreted, understood, or, on the other hand, That his teaching was correct to begin with. So after 14 years of doing his job, he comes and says, hey, I have this thought. Am I doing this right? Are people understanding this right? This is how I'm reading it, okay? Just at least that application. But at least he's coming before them and he wants to make sure that he's not running this race in vain. The key point to this section is that Paul submitted to these leaders, to the apostles. He came... For this purpose, he wasn't summoned. He didn't get a letter in the mail that said, You better show up in Jerusalem. No. The apostles confirmed his calling in the end, akin to ordination. If you didn't know, people don't become ordained when people get preyed upon and, and blessed or whatever have you. Uh, that actually is a confirmation presentation of what God has already done on that minister, that calling on their life. It's being confirmed there. And that's what's happening here. They confirm that God already called Paul in this way. They confirmed his message, that he was called to the Gentiles or the uncircumcised. That phrase is very important because it brings in the context of what we're talking about later on. And you know what? His calling was okay with them. It was noteworthy that the apostles and Paul were on the same page about remembering the poor. I believe that's a memory verse I heard for, for quizzing this year. Something about remembering the poor. But let's talk about these false brothers for a second. This opposition group. Uh, they, they're simmering in the background of, these cu- of the first couple chapters, and uh, we'll see them. These clowns, as I like to call them, they keep coming up, don't they? They keep poking... Poking in. They keep trying to do what they can to tear apart the church. Paul's not a fan of them and what they believe. And this is a reminder to the present audience at the time of the original reading, right? The Galatians. That these false brothers, hence the name false brothers, they have it wrong. And they need to be corrected. They need to be dealt with. They need to be understood that they are there and they're not help, helping. What do the false brothers say? Here's what they say. They say that Gentiles must be circumcised, or in a sense, they need to follow the law and become a Jew before they can become a Christian. It's like this extra layer, this gateway that Gentiles have to follow in order to become a Christ follower. This point of contention did not end in chapter 1. Remember, we addressed it at the end of last week's message. It keeps coming up. And in the following verses, these spies, he actually calls them spies, and false brothers wield influence on even the highest members of the apostles. And you gotta love Paul because he just can't let that kind of shenanigans stand. So let's go ahead and look at verses 11 through 21. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners— know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have to put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If we, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroy, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Powerful words. So, recap this lunchtime showdown for a second. Time passes, right? Peter comes to visit in Antioch, and he acts two different ways. First, he sits in fellowships with the Gentiles, the Gentile believers. Second, he doesn't sit with the, in fellowship with the Gentiles. And this is only after the circumcision group came. Even though they decided they each had different callings, Paul to the Gentiles, Peter to the Jews, Peter allowed peer pressure to cause him to be a hypocritical, two-faced liar. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> the worst part wasn't Peter's hypocrisy alone. It was what it did to those who looked up to him for solid leadership. Hear me now. When you got somebody in leadership, you need to be able to follow their example, and they just might lead you in the, down the Brimrose path. Galatians 2.13, again, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Leading Paul's right-hand man astray. That ain't cool. I'm sure he didn't have, he didn't enjoy that at all. And in verse 14, Paul recognizes what was going on. The truth of the gospel was not showing itself in how they were living. Remember, Paul lived, I said last week, Paul lived the gospel story through his redemption from the Damascus, or the road to Damascus. And he, we look at this, and the truth of the gospel is not showing up in this way that these people are living and treating the Gentiles. Instead of correcting each of the groups, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. Hey, you shouldn't be doing that. Here's what he does he goes to the head of the problem. Peter, you are the leader, and here's the problem. You are a Jew, 14b. You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You're getting peer pressured, Peter. You are. And then everybody else is following your lead down the road of hypocrisy. It sounds like, as he asks Peter this question, that it's rhetorical. And in fact, if you keep reading on, and we did, we never hear from Peter, at all, you go to the next chapter. Peter doesn't rebut this, and uh, some translations, the quotation marks, if your Bible has those, continue on to the end of the chapter. I don't know if you know this. Some sometimes these geeky little uh, contextual informations like make me happy. I, I like to learn them. Um, but quotation marks mean somebody is speaking to another person, and anytime you hear a story and it says they said this, and they continue to talk. It's a whole new paragraph. What's assumed is the audience has not changed. Okay? Uh, That that might be so basic that I'm boring you with that detail, but it's important. Okay? Because here's the thing. If those quotation marks carry on down through the section, if the interpretation is that this whole passage is one big speech that Paul is saying from that little bit that we just read in 14 Continuing down. It means his audience is still Peter. It means he's still talking to Peter when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, the life I live now in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In verse 20. However, and if your book had your Bible has footnotes, um, it might have the similar footnote that mine does. Uh, it says something to the effect of that some interpreters end the quotation after verse 14. This doesn't change what the words are or even the depth of their meaning to us, but it does give us a better understanding of who the audience is. Because remember, if the quotations continue, it means we're still talking to the same person and he's addressing Peter. If it doesn't, then it means we're talking to a different audience. Because... If it's not Peter, and he and the quotations do end after verse fourteen, he's talking now back to the original audience that he'd been talking to before he had story time, and when when he started this chapter out with story time, it's the Galatians. I am more personally convinced I would interpret and translate it as such that it would be the second choice for me. It makes more sense. The message he speaks in the same, he's addressing it directly to the Galatians. He's moved beyond story time, beyond recalling a teachable moment when he had to confront Peter. He's moved beyond that, quoting himself, back to everyone's favorite part of the sermon, right? The application point, the end. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. His statement to Peter earlier seems more straightforward, in his face, addresses the issue, but it's a rhetorical question. Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then he has this big soliloquy of of teaching for the Galatians. That's how I'm seeing it here. Paul's argument, documented here in the second chapter of Galatians, is that those who rely on the old way For justification and salvation, will continue to be disappointed by it. Because righteousness can't be obtained through the law. But obtaining righteousness through the law is exactly what these false brothers, that came from James, by the way, the circumcision group, were pushing. That's what they were doing. Hey, let's go back to the old ways, or let's force the Gentiles to follow the old ways so that they can do this, this new Jesus thing. That doesn't sound great. And Paul, then in verse 18, a little bit earlier, he talks this really quick thing I said. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. I had to mill over this one for a little bit. I had to do some reading myself and understand what he's saying here. Because it sounds like a, almost a parable or a proverb or something like that. More proverb. Um, catchphrase. Whatever. But what he's talking about, what has he destroyed and then potentially could have rebuilt in this context. Well, in Paul's case, he's referring to his old way of life. You see, his seeking justification, seeking righteousness through keeping the law, that was what he was all about. But when he came to faith in Christ alone, his old model had to be torn down. It was not his salvation. It was merely a shadow of what God would later accomplish for the whole world in Jesus. And we find that, it, that the Bible even hinted at it, at that lamb to be slain. Isaiah 53, seven. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Paul's new life was built on Jesus. Those he led in the faith put their faith in Jesus. Not the law, not Paul, not Peter, but Jesus. This trouble in Galatia, I don't think... It would surprise you to know that it doesn't end in chapter 2, but it surely gets thoroughly addressed here. You see, Paul said it in chapter 1. It reemphasized here in chapter 2. Stay away from these false brothers. Make sure you're following the true gospel, teaching the true gospel. This issue of adherence to the law for Gentiles was such a turning point for Christianity. And what we see here is freedom. Believers like you and me might have been required to fulfill various Jewish requirements. Had Paul not thought to make this very clear, what is it that people really need to be saved and to come to Christ? What is it that they need to do? Righteousness won't come from following the law. In fact, it never did. Even during the Old Testament, it always came from God. Genesis 15:6. Abram believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, credited it to him as righteousness. Yes, Abram had to believe the Lord, or he did, but the, but the righteousness came from the Lord. Closing questions for you to mill over this week. As we wrap up things. And I do want you to take a closer look at this chapter this week. But think about who or what are you putting your faith in? Usually we refer to relying on or we're hoping in. We really want that thing. We're crossing our fingers and knocking on wood that something good's going to happen. But truthfully, when it comes to the most important thing, which is the salvation of our eternal souls... Who or what are you putting your faith in? Who or what are you believing? You see, Paul knew right from wrong. He handled the situation that we read about today decisively. And he used it to further instruct the believers in Galatia. And you know what? He used it to instruct us today. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. They're strong words. And if you think that you're running your race in vain, maybe what you need to do is what Paul did. Bring it before somebody else. Is this the gospel I should be preaching? Is this the gospel that I'm living out? Get a checkup like Paul did, found out they were on the same page, found out the only thing that they recommended was the very thing he wanted to do, which was remember the poor. And then later, Paul needed to be bold, even challenging people who are leading others astray. Where does God have you today? Let's let God Guide us this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We thank you for your righteousness, for your grace and your mercy and your salvation. It all comes from you. It is a gift that we receive. It isn't just dished out to anybody, but it is for everybody. We have to accept that gift that you did give and you died for us. I thank you that Paul was as bold as he was, that you called him so strongly that even those who are looked up to by all of the Christians at that time could have been getting it wrong, sending certain men from James, Peter becoming a hypocrite, and then Paul had to call him on the carpet Lord, I pray that you would give us the boldness to call out what is wrong. I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the strength and the guidance from the Holy Spirit to stay on the right path. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.